Super Talk Mississippi media production. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. The last Friday Eve of the year 2023 is upon us. We're going to be here all day, (laughs) and tomorrow then we will depart for an extended weekend, which will include New Year's Eve as we welcome in 2024. We'll take off on Monday and back at it on Tuesday. And you know who else will be at it? All them legislators. They're going to be down there at the Capitol making laws. Hang (laughs) on to your wallets. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, where do you intend to enjoy the New Year's Eve there, Rhino? Oh, I'm going to be at my apartment, maybe hanging out with friends when it comes to New Year's Eve for the festivities. But, okay. uh, yeah, not not having any travel plans is nice after a whirlwind of a weekend for Christmas. Okay. Well, you can, uh, if you care to see it from Times Square, arguably the most famous place on the planet, to ring in the New Year... It'll only cost you $12,500 if you want to stay at the Marriott Marquis to ring in 2024. Uh. Uh, also saw, this is weird, you can buy a seat at one of the two Applebee's in Times Square. 650 bucks for a seat at the Applebee's. At the, bees. <laughs> at the uh, neighborhood bar and grill. Hey, but you get a menu that goes a little beyond the typical fare served by the neighborhood bar and grill there. Still probably half heated up in a microwave. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. You're paying for the real estate is what one travel agent said. That's what they all say. Isn't it? I saw a debate about the, the New Year's Eve festivities last night online, and it was somebody trying to say that Las Vegas will eclipse New York with their new sphere. Hmm. When it comes to the New Year's festivities and the countdown and the ball drop. And there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of people chiming in. And I didn't see anybody mention the fact that Las Vegas's time zone probably dings it a bit for that. Yeah, I would think so. It's probably right. Because if they're ringing in the New Year, the people on the East Coast have had two hours of the New Year already. Yeah. But, you know, we reported uh, yesterday that uh, whichever organization it is, is now ranked Orlando as the top in the country. Which is still in the Eastern time zone. That's right. Still in the Eastern time zone. Correct. 
Of course, we're going to be doing a show today, tomorrow, and then I'm headed over to Atlanta. I'm going to take in the uh, last-minute decision there. That, that, that was made uh, Tuesday evening. And we're going to head over there and take in the uh, Peach Bowl featuring the uh, Rebels of Ole Miss and, of course, the Nittany Lions of Penn State. Lots of red and blue on that game, I reckon. A lot of blue. Yeah, a lot of blue, that's for sure. Uh, a sellout is what I hear. A sellout. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On uh, that, And that game will be played at noon Eastern on Saturday, 11 o'clock, our time. An actual normal college football kickoff time. Correct. As compared to like a 9, 9.30 p.m. kickoff Jeez. for a game that doesn't take place on the East Coast. So far... The bowl games have been less than exciting, I would say. Well, that that tends to be every year. Every once in a while you have an exciting game in the first half of the slate. But yeah. some years you just get duds. Yeah. Well, that, in my view, they've been kind of so-so so far. But we shall see as it gets cranked up, certainly this weekend. If you like football, man, this is it because it will be jam-packed. You know the games are I don't want to say bad, yeah, but you know they're less interesting when some of the headlines involve fans buying out all the alcohol in the stadium before the third <laughs> quarter or a marriage proposal in the end zone and no highlights of the game or no scores. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much what we've been seeing. So, you know, Wendy's, the folks that make hamburgers, right? They, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you seen this? The announcement? They don't cut corners. No, that's right. Uh, um, they're celebrating National Bacon Day. Well, that makes sense. They've with, got the Baconator. That's with, well, this is the one-cent cheeseburger deal, the bacon cheeseburger. I think it's the junior, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. That you can get for one cent. And I believe you have to do it... Uh, is it through Monday, I think? And you have to do it online, is I believe what the requirement is. So that's interesting, a one-cent hamburger. I, and they, You know, I kind of came across this sort of randomly. I haven't seen them promote the heck out of it. Well, I mean, they don't <laughs> want to lose their shirt. <laughs> yeah, apparently it started yesterday and it okay. runs through the second. The second, okay. But... You either order online or you have to create a rewards account ah, and order through the app. That's the catch. They want that rewards account thinking that they're going to keep you coming on back. And, of course, they will absolutely bombard you with all sorts of digital communications uh, as a result. But, you know, it's okay. I'm okay with that. You you understand that when you provide your information they're not trying to hide that from you. You know that's what they want it for. And if it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. And that's the bottom line. Apparently, this is the second time they've done this. Apparently, they did, it, they did it for National Cheeseburger Day back in September as well. I didn't know that. So the day itself, National Bacon Day, happens to be the 30th of December, Saturday. But they decided to... I'll make sure I celebrate. Make it all week. It's not National Bacon Day, it's National Bacon Week. It's actually a pretty good idea 
honestly. And you know what they're counting on is folks will say, well, heck, for a penny, I'll try it. And if they like it, they're going back. Oh, yeah. They've got that figured into their algorithms. And that's pretty cool, honestly. Plus, I mean, you can apply the concept of a lost leader to it as well. You show up, are you really just going to get the one-cent burger, or are you no going to get a drink? You're going to get some fries. You're going to get a Frosty. And if you look at the, the margin in that industry, most of it does not come from the, the main fare there, from the actual hamburgers. It comes from all the other stuff, the fries, the drink, drinks especially. Oh, yeah. But that's fine. That's the model, and it's uh, the way the market works. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, it is predicted that gas prices will continue to fall uh, into 2024, and that this is according to Gas Buddy. They're pretty reliable in predicting the outlook for gasoline. They say they're going to fall in 2024. That would, of course, be the second year in a row. They certainly are down this year versus 2022, and they say that. Of course, an election year has something to do with it, but that Americans are expected to spend $32 billion less on fuel. Now, with respect to this subject, and we're probably going to get caught by the time here, we'll continue it, but, you know, you're seeing the Democrats run around, boast about, we're producing more oil than we ever have before. That's absolutely true. That, that is a fact. Uh, and it is slightly more than was being produced when Donald Trump left office. However, what I've said on the show is, had we just stayed on the trend we were on and continued with those sort of fossil fuels-friendly policies we experienced under the former president, I think we'd be producing a whole lot more oil, which would have um, a positive impact on inflation, not to mention the cost of fuel and shipping and everything else. Well, I saw a report yesterday from the energy industry, suggesting that had we just stayed the course, we'd be producing about 4 million barrels more daily in this country than we are. That is incredible. 4 million. Now, we consume 19.5 million a day. We're producing about 13 million. We've never, I know this is kind of a, a misconception, we've never produced as much as we consume. That's not what the definition of energy independence is. Isn't the federal government buying 3 million barrels to replenish? Yeah. Um, they've Just to put of, it in perspective. That's right. Um, and that's a one-time purchase to replenish the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But that's right. Uh, the point, so they think that's a good investment one time. That's right. And we could be making more than that a day. Yeah. And they could have done this... Uh, when the price was down, as Trump did, as you recall, uh, during the pandemic, he had the good sense. I mean, it ain't like you got to be a genius to figure that out. Wow, the price is at an all-time historical low. This probably be a good time to go buy some. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. we got Jeremy Nelson at 11.05. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Let's go. 
Welcome back, everyone. It is middays, and that is from the all-hit request line there by Gary and the Berg. There you go. A really good one there, Rhino. Appreciate that. The Dow presently up about 46 points. The uh, NASDAQ, last I checked, was up just a bit, just a sliver. But overall, it looks like we're going to end the year on a positive note from a market. Yeah, the NASDAQ up 21 points. From a market perspective, we'll dig into that with Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth, get his thoughts about the outlook. So this energy independence thing, simply defined just means that when you consider the aggregate of all energy forms produced and the aggregate within the borders of a nation and the aggregate, the sum of all energy consumed. Essentially, just do a simple math equation. Here's the total amount consumed. Here's the total amount produced. You have achieved independence when on the produced side you equal or exceed the consumed amount, volume. I think a lot of people always uh, sort of associate that with just oil. But as you guys know, we consume lots of different energy forms, and there are multiple sources, natural gas, renewables, heating oil, Uh, electricity and whatever it is derived and produced from. And then, of course... We don't see as much heating oil in the South. Not in the South, but in the North. That's that's fairly common. Um, But it it doesn't simply uh, apply to oil as in gas and diesel that we buy at the pump. That's not what energy independence means. However... It is absolutely it, so, and that's because oil, as you guys know, is a global commodity. We have never in the history of this country produced as much oil as we consume. Can we? I believe we could. And that's the point. We were on such a trajectory because we had a president that didn't state, as Joe Biden did, yeah, I'm going to kill the fossil fuels industry. How can the left get away with not acknowledging that? Maybe they do and just don't talk about it because it's not politically popular. But he said it, Rhino. You've seen it. We played it on the program where he was having one-on-one conversations with people said, yeah, but, you know, Mr. President, we want to, whatever, you know, we want to get rid of all these fossil fuels. Yeah, they're going to be gone. They're out of here. We're getting rid of them. And they made that clear. In all their policies. They get away with it because the midwits and the clapping seals that vote for them don't care. I think that's true. And that's sad. So, again, I'm not trying to dispute what you hear out of folks on the right, including the former president, uh, Donald Trump. We were energy independent. He's right. We were. That is absolutely true. Except that applies to more than just oil. And that, of course, translates to what most people think about when they uh, are are talking about energy, which is the price of gas at the pump. I do, too. I get it. Would the price be lower, arguably, had we just continued 
with the Trump policies, which are favorable and friendly to the oil and gas industry? Absolutely. I totally believe we would. And right now, just the pullback in oil is mostly attributed to not so much the increase in production as it is the decrease in demand. And that's stemming mostly from China, which is struggling right now from an economic perspective. So if China cranks back up, you're going to see demand also increase, and that would put pressure on the price of oil. Uh, But especially when you got a current administration that's doing everything in their power to essentially end the production and consumption of fossil fuels. It's a war on that. It's a war on your appliances. Yesterday we shared with you new policies coming out that are now targeting dishwashers and washing machines. It's insane. Do they really think that makes any difference? I'm not convinced whatsoever that any of that is impactful and meaningful. I just, I'm not. It's always, it's always. But it gives them the warm and fuzzies like they're actually doing something because they think hashtag activism actually does something. It doesn't do jack squat. No. Except make everybody miserable and honestly decrease the quality of life. It's insane. Totally. Well, you have, um, you got the president, by the way. He's in St. Croix. There's multiple crises that are mounting. This guy takes off to St. Croix. He's staying at a home of a wealthy friend that would rent it for more than six k. He's he's doing it for no charge. He is uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands as of yesterday. Yet for another free vacation. At the home of wealthy supporters. Now, aren't these the same people that always blast those of us on the right for accepting these favors from wealthy donors and crap? Is this so hypocritical? (laughs) It's incredible. If it wasn't for double standards, the left wouldn't have any standards at all. Wouldn't have any. And in the meantime, if you hadn't seen it, folks, there is a caravan, a mass of humanity headed to the U.S. border. This is being described as the largest ever, and I'm looking at video and images, 15,000, 15,000, 15, I can't, I can't get over it, honestly, 15,000, I'm looking at it, it's incredible, the, uh, these migrants are coming here, of course, That'll be 15,000 smartphones. That'll be 15,000 prepaid visas. That'll be 15,000 plane tickets. And that'll be 15,000 hotel rooms. Um, $450 billion, I think, is the price tag. Since Joe Biden's been in office, the the taxpayers have absorbed uh, on behalf of the various benefits being provided. Oh, and by the way, they won't have their asylum hearings for another decade and a half. Uh, exactly right. Three million in the backlog uh, t- before they get to court. Yeah, some of them as far as 10 years out. That's that's a joke, is it not? I mean, it's just a joke. Why do you even schedule it when you do that? So 
in terms of, think about this, the number of migrants who have crossed the southern border this year exceeds the population of 17 states in this country. One of those, of course, is the great state of Mississippi. That's Doesn't that say something to rational, clear-thinking people that, say, that keep telling us, no, there's no problem, the border is secure? Well, therein lies the rub. That's assuming the left is rational and it, sane. They're not. And, and it's uh, disturbing to see this kind of mass. And, and, of course, what they'll tell you is that, well, it's inhumane to reject them. No, no it's not. If, it would be different if you had these, these widespread reports of true oppression. I mean, physical harm and threat occurring in these countries. That ain't the case. The problem is they're corrupt, and thus opportunity is limited. They come here, and the free stuff they get here exceeds what they could produce for themselves and their families legitimately in those countries. Yet, we have an administration that's trying to make us look more like them from a government perspective. That's how upside down that is. Yeah, asylum my butt. These you, you All you have to do is look at... Statistically, they can't all be here for asylum correct, claims. Correct, correct. And, yeah. when, and when you ask 99.999% of them claim asylum. And when they get interviewed, they don't say, yeah, I'm here because the government was on me and I, I feared for my life. But then again, the left really doesn't care for statistics because they tend to poke holes in all their narratives. And they're terrible at math, as we already know. Well, yeah. <laughs> all right, that too on the all-hit request line is Foreigner. That was yesterday. A great video out there on YouTube of that, by the way. We'll listen to that for a second. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Wealth studio with Jeremy Nelson, a partner at Element Wealth, on the program at 11.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. There you go, another on the all-hit request line, the babies. How good is that? We are, of course, in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for a retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to MyElementWealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And don't forget Jeremy Nelson, partner 
with Element Wealth will join us in the Element Wealth studio at 11.05, and we'll get his thoughts on the uh, year 2024 from a market and economic perspective. Always uh, intriguing and sort of multidimensional, Rhino, because we also have an election of the president coming up. And that will often figure into the performance of the economy and the market. Looking forward to that conversation. Um, I had kind of forgotten this from yesterday until I got off the show. Just wanted to pass on that it was two years ago on the day yesterday that I liquidated my last private business asset. When I sold my company in 19, there was a practice area that the acquirer did not purchase. They were not interested in it. And it was a bit of a diversion from the typical scope of services at a company that uh, was focused on the, the area of technology that we did. When we when I went to our financial partners and, and pitched the idea of incorporating such a company in our platform, they were a little skeptical, but I was able to ultimately persuade them that this would be a good move and uh, w- would help us from a valuation perspective. And it was a, a company that focused on the implementation, design, implementation, support of Oracle uh, financial solutions for the process manufacturing industry. I know that gets a little crazy wonky. And we had clients all over the country. In fact, we even had one in, in Mexico. And this company was based in Waukesha, Wisconsin. You may remember, was that not the site of the tragic, was it the Christmas parade a couple of years ago? Remember that? It's kind of suburban Milwaukee, if you will. It was based in Waukesha. And we also had an office in in uh, the Chicago area as well. But folks were all over the country. And uh, we maintained that company and operated it uh, very successfully. And then we were approached by a a third party in the same business, a competitor, if you will, and they acquired it yesterday, two years ago. And that was it for me from a business asset perspective, at least a private business asset perspective, (laughs) an operating asset. Um, When my – let's see. No, that's from a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of days ago. Darren and Jackson. Most of them, bus most of them to New York City and Chicago. Talking about this wave of migrants coming across. You know, they are, Darren. And if, you, if you've uh, perhaps seen some news along those lines, you got the mayors of both Chicago and New York admonishing the Biden administration, scolding them. And... The mayor of Chicago, in particular, says, quote, the entire country is now at stake. Really? What took you so dang long? So here's the problem. I, I want to fix that problem. I think clear-thinking people see what's going on and know this is insanity. But, dude, you were all in with the president. Your party is all about this. Your people, and I'm talking about your people and your party, I don't see any efforts on their part to stem the tide, to secure the border. you got a president that's vacationing in St. Croix with the biggest mass of people ever approaching our border. 
16,000. We just reported that just in terms of numbers of those who crossed the border illegally this year, that's more than the population of 17 of the states in the U.S. And so, but you know, rather than calling for some changes at the border, some policy changes, like we had under President Donald Trump, where we didn't experience this sort of massive migration. No, that's not what they're asking for. We need more money. Of course. So they're they're imploring the president, send us more money to deal with this. Of course you are. They say it's not sustainable without significant federal funding. This is, of course, after he welcomed them with open arms. We're a sanctuary city, they declared. It's just incredible. So Texas is loading up the buses and sending them that way because they said, hey, we're open here. We're all about it. Incredible. Brandon Johnson, that's the mayor of Chicago, he said about 15,000 asylum seekers. That is horse hockey. They're not asylum seekers. They're benefits seekers is what they are. They're welfare seekers. They were crammed into 27 shelters across the city after they were bused from the border, particularly, of course, from Texas, which is where most of the flow is going. I think I also read that some 16,000 invaded San Diego last week. 16,000. It's unthinkable. About 10,000 on average are crossing over a day, and they're being bust. Uh, that's the mayor of Denver. What's his name? Jared Polis, whose creepy video we played yesterday. By the way, we've posted that on the Super Talk social media site <laughs> where he's singing Feliz Navidad, making a bit of a mockery of the situation in the Mile High City, which is being inundated with migrants. Because they're coming across the border, and I don't blame Governor Abbott. Why should the state of Texas have to absorb all that? It's the people in Denver, in New York, in Chicago, who are all about, yeah, we got to let them in. You can't help, honestly, but conclude, and some may say, no, it's a conspiracy theory. I mean, they felt like they were big enough to handle it when they claimed sanctuary city status to oppose President Trump. I agree. And his policies at the federal level. I totally agree. They didn't need any federal funding then. AOC down there with the feigned tears and all that crap. Where is yeah, she now? Yeah, in a parking lot at a gate. She wasn't anywhere close to the border during those <laughs> pictures. That was a photo shoot. Unbelievable. Well, it just seems like that the president would be hanging around and addressing this issue, at, at a minimum that issue. I mean, because it's, it's crisis level. How could you not describe it as a crisis? I don't see how, honestly. Jim and the Delta, will this caravan of aliens have to cross the river, or do we allow them to just walk through the gates at the border? Well, uh, apparently, my understanding is, Jim, that the cartels who are running the show, let's be honest, they've got all kinds of ways of getting these people across. Um, and it, it, it almost seems as if until we dispatch the U.S. military to the border, 
I don't know that we could stem the tide. And my fear is, even if Donald Trump is reelected and he imposes the policies, the Remain in Mexico policy, Title 42, and, of course, doesn't continuously spout the rhetoric we hear from Biden and the Democrats about how we have to uh, it, it's not who we are, isn't that what they say? We allow anybody to come over seeking asylum, and we grant them such. My fear is that now they figured out... Well, that's that viewpoint is just sheer ignorance. Completely. Because they always point to, well, Ellis Island. Well, do you know the history of Ellis Island? Of course not. Do you know how many people got sent back from Ellis Island? No. No. Um, it's We seem to twist and turn and distort and manipulate history a lot, do we not, as a basis for present policy? We don't call them out enough on it. Uh, but my fear is, is that they've, they've attained, obtained lots of knowledge and lots of technology and lots of methodology to cross the border that it's going to take something way more drastic than just changing policies to really stem the tide. That's my concern, even if Donald Trump's reelected, that they've had three, four years now to really uh, devise even more innovative methods. I laugh because it's true. They've, they've learned a lot during this period of time because it's so easy. And now they've created all these routes and all these approaches and that just continues, and I, I believe it's going to take significant uh, investment and deployment of American assets that are truly assigned to and order to stopping the stem. And that's going to, I think, take the military. I don't think border control can do it. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Another tune from the all-hit request line. That request from Charles and Matheston. Little twisted sister. We're not going to take it. Also, Charles uh, sent us a compliment. Appreciate that, Charles. Said kudos to you and Rhino on the board. You have great enunciation behind the mic, which makes listening on radio a breeze. Really appreciate that, Charles. Sometimes, as Rhino knows, you... You can get a little lazy. I mean, you have to be deliberate. You learn that. And you go back and listen to yourself say, I didn't I didn't do that very good. And you work on that. That's right, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it, it's surprisingly easy to get tongue-tied if you haven't spoken a whole lot for the morning or done. And this may sound funny because it's, it's not athletics, but you do have warm-ups you can do. That's right. Yeah. I'll, I'll be in the parking lot going... <laughs> just try to loosen everything up <laughs> absolutely correct well also just as we were discussing 
immigration. You know, it's an era, is it not, of hypersensitivity and sort of hyper-use of language that is more euphemistic. Is that? I think that's an accurate way to describe it. It's just trying to sort of disguise what it really is. It's reproductive health care, as an example. And, and uh, gender affirmation care as a euphemism for, oh, you mean mutilating the genitals of a child? Well, now immigration, <laughs> it's not illegal border crossings or illegal um, migration. No, it's irregular migration. <laughs> it just came out that on the social media platform, uh, Twitter, we call it here on Middays, Rhino has decreed that. Anthony Blinken, who's he? Secretary of State, I believe, right? He said both sides, he's been meeting with the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Obrador, discussing this surge at the border that we just shared with you. He said both sides discussed ways to <laughs> stem the irregular migration. Irregular. Oh, you mean when cartels are engaged in human trafficking, as an example? And that they honestly victimize children, allow them to even die, to perish en route, if it achieves their goal. Of, of getting a payday, honestly. That's irregular migration. This is insane. I'm sick of this wordsmithing crap. It's ridiculous. It, it totally is. Why can't you just describe it for what it is? These are bad people, are the cartels, and they are in cahoots. You can't, you can't convince me otherwise with the Mexican government who's getting money under the table to look the other way, as is the case in the other countries that are feeding these migrants. They're coming across, and we have a, a willing and receptive government at the federal level. This isn't irregular migration. This is the inability and unwillingness to secure the border, to take what measures are necessary. I just happen to believe that I don't know that it's possible without the U.S. military. And I'm fine with that. If it means the military is deployed, mobilized, to secure the border, is there something wrong with that? It makes sense to me. I'm just not sure that border security is sufficient. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a long track there. It's ridiculous. So, and, and Texas has begun arresting people at the border that they feel are warranted for such. Really incredible. Somebody on the ceasefire tax line said, send the illegals to Jackson. Oh, geez, we got enough problems in Jackson without piling that on there. What difference would it make if he weren't on vacation if he was here, he would not do anything anyway. Doesn't care on the ceasefire tax line. 
Well, let's just say, as uh, as is typically um, described or a way to describe it in the political world, the optics don't look good. <laughs> Isn't that what they say? It's not good optics. He's headed down, jetting away to St. Croix, staying at an expensive spot owned by one of his wealthy donors while there's just multiple crises going on here in the country. Uh, Notwithstanding crime and, of course, what's happening at the border and the anti-Semitism stuff as well. We're stepping aside for a break. Fox News, Super Talk News is next. And then it's Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth. And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of Middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. Uh, we welcome to the program now Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Well. Jerry, good to see you. Uh, Jeremy, pardon me, and Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we got a new year upon us on the horizon. Yeah. What is your crystal ball saying about uh, economic conditions and the markets in general? Well, you know, so as we went into this year, you know, one of our messages at our economic forecast was, you know, don't be too bearish, right? Don't just because it was a down year, don't be selling. Our message going into next year is, you know, don't chase the euphoria of the of the past couple of months. Okay. You know, we are going into a uh, a presidential election year. Right, so presidential election years typically will have a little bit more volatility to them. Now, a lot of people believe that presidential election years tend to be negative for the markets. That is not true. They just kind of, they tend to be average, but they tend to be a little bit above average with with in terms of volatility. Right, so mm-hmm. I think you're going to have a little bit more volatility next year. You've also got some you know pretty excessive sentiment in the market right now. That's built up over the past couple of months, and that could let off at some point in the first couple months of the year where you could get a a little bit of a correction. So, you know, we're kind of telling people, look, the the probability of a soft landing, it's gone up. Um, I still tend to think that there's a little bit of economic risk here. Um, There's some tail risk with the the rising interest rates and and the unwinding of all the Fed stimulus. Mm -hmm. But thus far – you know, everyone's been wrong, right? We haven't had a recession from it. So the probability of a, a soft landing is is going up, which ultimately would be good for markets next year. Okay. Well, um, we've had a great run in November, and it's sort of continued into December. Yep. We're, we're trending upward and certainly faring much better, I think, than we thought we were going to be a couple short months ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you remember back in 
October, right, we got down to 4,100 on the S&P. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, are we going to retest the lows? That's what all the pundits were talking mm-hmm. about. And then, boom, you know, huge rally here at the end of the year. Again, the the markets will be a little bit schizophrenic every once in a while, right? And yeah. so they'll they'll tend to get overly optimistic and overly pessimistic. Right now, you know, the levels of sentiment that we're seeing – you know, are are very very optimistic. That, as a contrarian, is a little bit of a, a a sell signal in the short run. Do you think that that's mostly driven by the the last uh, uh, Fed meeting where Powell pretty much signaled, "Yeah, we're going to start cutting rates." I mean, at least some people read that into it. Yeah, um, I mean, what what you've seen. So there's it's twofold, right? So number one, the the market looks and says, okay, the Fed's going to cut next year, so that's bullish. Mm-hmm. In, in reality, the, the the trouble typically doesn't start until the Fed has to start cutting. Right. right? So, that's right. So historically, that's not necessarily the best thing in the world. But what's also happened is that the 10-year Treasury has backed off tremendously. Right. Yep. We've crossed that 5% line. We've fallen below 4% Four. now. Mm-hmm. So if you start thinking about valuations and discounted cash flows and how you're valuing companies, those lower interest rates are going are pushing valuations up. So I do think a lot of it has to do with just the ten year backing off, adjusting valuations upwards. Uh, but that was all triggered when the Fed said, "Okay, yeah, we're we're pretty much done." Now the the market is forecasting like six cuts next year. I don't think we're going to see six cuts. If we see six cuts, it is going to be because there's problems. Yeah, and let, let's explain that. So if if the if the Fed is is uh, cutting at that sort of pace, uh, that means they're trying to stimulate the economy because the, the economy has retracted. Exactly. Uh, somewhat. Yeah. Right? What what would happen is if you know if the Fed says, "Hey, we're going to hold here," or or we're going to cut fifty basis points throughout the year because we don't need to be this aggressive. Inflation is coming down. That's very bullish. But if the Fed had to go six times and cut rapidly, they only do that when there's trouble. Yeah. And, and that would mean that there was an economic problem recession, that was brewing usually. or recession that yeah. was brewing it, for them to have to cut that much. Yeah. And it, and I think what's been odd about uh, just the, the economic performance in general is that Unemployment has been remarkably steady and still relatively low. Yes, but okay. So, what is unemployment? You know, yeah, if if right. I'm if I'm an Uber driver or door dashing or whatever it might be, then I'm not and I'm not looking for a full time job. I am enjoying the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Then I don't show up as unemployed. You know. So there's there's a difference between the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, the labor market con- does continue to be strong. Uh, you know, we saw you know the the auto unions and, and different groups earlier in the year that were able to leverage the strength in the labor markets for you know better pay and better benefits. And I agree that, uh, and, and there's been a lot of criticism and even calls for just uh, altering the methodology used in calculating unemployment. And there are multiple calculations, yeah. as you know as well, kind of like there is for inflation. But 
I guess you're not seeing headlines of mass layoffs. That's typically what you experience in a, in we, a significant downturn. Yeah, we we saw the mass layoffs in 2021 and 2022, late 21 and 22 in in tech and banking. Right? Yeah, um, but it hasn't gone through into indu- into the industrials and construction and, right. and all of those things. Now, a lot of that is because of the government money. Yeah. That is still out there, right? We're st- like in Mississippi. We're still we got forty percent or so left of all the infrastructure money to continue to spend. Yeah, and I think that is part of what's propping things up a little bit. I agree. That's a good point. Of course, on the other hand, that's typically inflationary. So we have, we have the the downside of that. Well, hence you know why we haven't broken through three percent on the inflation right? front. So, and and this is the thing to remember: inflation compounds. Right. It's it's just because the inflation rate is coming down, it means there's still inflation. Yeah. So if you're the average consumer, right, if you're making fifty thousand dollars a year, it's not getting easier, right? It's still getting harder. It's just it's it the rate of change is less. Yeah, and what you got to hope uh, as a consumer is that your wages are at least keeping up with, or if you're in good a better position, exceeding the uh, so-called real wages. Yeah, and and then you know that's where we also get into you know kind of the there's there's the headline inflation rate, and then there's the real inflation rate that people feel. Right. Right. So if you think about cars. Uh, if there are new features, right, self-driving features that are added to the cars, well, those are new features. That's not inflation, but you can't buy a car without them, yeah. right? Every car has got all of this technology in it now, so things do get more expensive. Um, yeah, makes yeah. sense. But uh, and in the labor force participation rate, um, still trailing a bit behind where it was pre-COVID. Yeah, uh, what you're We're not there yet. Yeah, what you're saying is that there are people. Who are just saying, you know what? Hey, we're we're not going to go back to work. Yeah, all right. We're going to be a, a single income household, which nowadays is is very difficult. Yeah, you know something else. I think that's at play there with respect to government uh, policy is the uh, employee retention credit, which you're just seeing a whole industry spring up, just consulting with companies to file for and get their money, and it's turning out to be rife with fraud. Oh, well. look, this this one right here, um, you know, buyer buyer beware yeah. on, on that one. Um, and that's that's a lot of money. You know, look, so I, I've, I've got business owner clients who were legitimately affected uh, by COVID. They got the PPP funds. They made it through. Their business is stronger today, but then they were still eligible for the ERC, the Employee Retention Tax Credit. Well, you know that was that's kind of a pretty big government handout yep. uh, to a lot of people, and you know that money is out there. So I, I do think that is part of the the stimulus and what is keeping consumption up as well. I, I definitely do as well, and we should point out that goes back to uh, twenty twenty. I mean, this is uh, that was President Trump President signed Trump. that on his way out. Yeah, yeah. sure yeah. did. So, uh, but like I said, it's it has uh, given rise to an entire industry. <laughs> of consultants, uh, accountants and the like, uh, or just firms dedicated to just helping people 
file these credits, I assume they get compensated to some degree on that. Probably they some. typically get about 20% of what you okay. get. There you go. Yep. So, And you can still do it, even yep. though it was uh, enacted in 2020. we got Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth, in the Element Wealth studio. More to discuss after this. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. got Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Well. So one thing we need to pass on to the folks is that the IRS has adjusted the tax brackets for the next year, Yes, which is, of course, their, their, um, their policy based on inflation. Mm-hmm. And so we have experienced some inflation. And there are, let's see, there's an adjustment to the standard deduction. Remember, under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, mm-hmm. we eliminated the personal exemptions, but we increased, doubled, frankly, the standard deduction. And so that's going up, I think, a couple of grand or something like that. Um, That's going to go up, I mean, roughly 3% from what it was. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then also the... uh, uh, the brackets have been restructured to yeah. account for inflation yeah. as well. So, so, so every year, and, and so this is really, really Im- important to understand because if you start getting into your, you know, medic, your Medicare premiums yeah. and all that kind of stuff, um, how much income you can have before you get hit with those? If you're looking at doing Roth conversions, filling up some of those lower tax brackets, you know, in those early years of retirement before you get to required minimum distributions, you need to know where these levels are because they change every year and with the inflation over the past three years now um, they've, they've shifted dramatically yeah um, also you know what you'll see is that the amount of money that you pay social security tax on if you're working has gone it up goes dramatically up as well. right? yep. 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 yeah so uh, it just depends on where you fall in, in the income spectrum mm-hmm. but in general a lot of people will see their taxes actually go down. If their income remains relatively level or increases yep. somewhat, they'll they'll actually see a benefit there yep. uh, because of standard deduction. I'm, yeah, I just looked it up. It's going from uh, $27,700 $27, for married couples mm-hmm. filing jointly to $29,200. Yep. So, so it's for, a pretty good Yeah. It's a pretty good jump. So essentially that just means that that additional uh, – Money there that uh, what two thousand bucks is a little less than two thousand bucks is um, is deducted from your income additional deduction if you will before you arrive at the value that you used to apply the tax yeah. to so and so you know if if you're doing you know 
year-end tax planning and, and all those sorts of things where you're planning for next year, especially if you're in retirement, this is something that you really want to pay attention to. Yeah. Sometimes what we'll, what we'll see our clients do is we'll do like two years of charitable giving because you know once you get into retirement, a lot of times you can't itemize, right? That's right. And so what a lot of our clients will do is they'll kind of dump do, – they'll do all their charitable giving for two years at once in a tax year and then that way they can recapture the – the standard deduction. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, but on the horizon, something we've talked about frequently on the program uh, is the expiration of the in, uh, the individual provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So those stay in place through twenty twenty five, right? Yeah, effective twenty twenty six, unless the Congress acts. Uh, I suspect they will. What uh, they typically do when something like that, when when major tax uh, policy expires, but here's here's the question, right? So that's the letting those expire is the path of least resistance to address a two trillion dollar deficit. True, right? True. So if you're of, of the belief, right, which I am, that you have to do something about a two trillion dollar deficit, that this is not sustainable, yeah, right, that it will ultimately lead to a bigger problem, then you know something has to be done. Now I'm look. You got to find ways to cut spending. That's to me. That's the first place you go. Right? Sure. Cut spending, um, but something has to ultimately be done. And and as you talk about on the show all the time, you know, a lot of the money is going to non discretionary programs. Seventy percent. Yeah. So there's not a ton of room to go and find that two trillion dollars, right? To to push towards a balanced budget. Right. So if that's the case, then. There has to be a revenue increase to get this under control. And so there are very, very difficult things that uh, – decisions that are going to have to be made at the federal level to address this. And um, I really think that that is going to be a, a massive topic as we go into the midterms no know, after this next presidential election. That's absolutely right. Uh, the midterms would be coming up. Uh, in 26. So you got to feel like, though, once they, they all are seated in uh, January of 25, a whole, whole new House, potentially, and then, of course, lots of uh, movement in the Senate as well, mm-hmm. potentially a new president, that the year 2025, uh, that first year of the new, of the new class, they're going to have to take this up, given that it expires at the end of 2025. They're, they're going to have to. There's going to be pressure. So a, a little thing that no one's talking about this is the first year in in many many years where the dollar index is down. Yeah. Right. So you know if the dollar index were to continue to decline, right, and there was less demand for dollars throughout the globe, that's going to put more pressure on us. Um, you know that that's something that is is coming. And at our economic forecast events that are coming up in January, this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about. Okay. Actually, is that. You know, we think that the rubber is going to meet the road here uh, at some point in the next few years on these deficits. Uh, that that look, we've just accumulated too much debt. It's it's out of control. It's got to be addressed at some point in time, and that's not a doomsday prophecy, right? I, I saw the Harry Dent interview on Fox. I've had clients send it to I've me, and, right? Yeah. Look, go YouTube Harry Denny. He says this every year. I mean, there's it's <laughs> consistent. He's saying the same thing all the time. But my point is that you know some of the points that he makes are legitimate points. Now, the impact that it will have on the economy and markets, who you know, we don't know. That yeah. that's yet to be seen. 
But these are major issues that are going to have to be addressed. And I do hope that as we get into the uh, the election cycle here, that this is one of the topics that comes up, right? How are we going to address this? Because, you know, it's time for some fiscal restraint at the federal level. Yeah, and it, um, you know, they, they talk about it at a very high and um, almost ambiguous and and uh, uh, very just um, generic level. Yeah. Hey, we got to cut spending. Okay. Then, what? <laughs> and then they don't do anything. They don't do anything. Yeah. You know, and and we we've talked about this, you know, off the air and and on the air before. And, yeah. You know, clients always come to me and say, "Well, when when is the debt going to matter?" Yeah. And I said, or they say, "Why doesn't the debt matter?" I say, "It, it doesn't matter until it matters." Yeah. Right? And when it matters. It really matters, and that's what we're pushing towards with this federal debt right now. It, it, but just nobody will offer specifics. So you'll hear that refrain a lot. We've got to rein in the radical spending. Yeah, I agree. I mean, right. and across the board, you'll hear that, certainly from the right, but nobody offers any specifics. So, uh, like, you know, what what are you going to do? What are you going to cut? Right. You know? I mean, are you really going to go and pull money from the military with everything that's going on in the world right now? Yeah. Uh, you know, are you going to cut someone's Social Security? I don't think so. Right? Yeah. Are you going to cut Medicare? I don't no. think so. Right. Right. So, right. I mean, sacrifices will have to be will have to be made. Yeah, so you just wonder, are we poised to perhaps see a combination of cuts and and perhaps adjustments to the uh, the, the tax code yeah. to increase revenue, yeah, look, attempt I, to increase revenue? And, I mean, if, if you go and, and, like, let's kind of think about the implications that this could have down the road, this could trigger what we call, like, a secular bear market. Now, that doesn't mean, like, oh, no, it's the Depression. Yeah. Like, that let's, – let's put that off the table. That's not what we're worried about. But, you know, if you say stocks average 10% over time, well, you know, from 2009 to 2021, they averaged 15%. Yep. From 82 to 2000, they averaged 18 Well, that means that there's other p- long-term periods where market returns are much, much lower. Yeah. This could trigger one of those periods of time. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Uh, I, I just remain frustrated that e- even those who, who hold themselves up as – is really strong fiscal conservatives don't offer a lot of details in terms of plans to truly cut spending. And I don't mean by a little, because the problem is not a little. It's big. It's massive. And a lot of people say, well, you got to start somewhere. Okay, but where do you end? I mean, I, you need to see a plan that says, here's how we get to a point where we're not generating $2 trillion deficits on an yeah. annual basis. Yeah, look, and, and essentially what's been happening is we've been kicking the can down the road to – you know the Gen Xers, the Millennials, now the 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 Gen Zs. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a big big issue that needs to be addressed. Got to be serious about it. And of course, uh, those running for office are always careful not to say anything that would impose pain yep. on either side, yep. taxes or reining in spending, uh, because they fear that it. Won't sell very well to the voter for I mean, how do election you get, day. Yeah, how, how do you get elected when you're saying, "Hey, we're going to raise your taxes or we're going to reduce your benefits"? Uh, only from generally folks on the left that say, "Well, that's okay if you do, go tax the rich people." Yeah. They're they're all and they think that that can literally 
empower the entire nation, just confiscate more from a small sliver of society. But again, if you pull all of it from the rich people, you lose investment, no which then ultimately right. impacts, impacts jobs everybody. For everybody. Yeah. Yep. Jeremy, appreciate you coming in. Have a happy New Year, sir. I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks Looking a lot. Looking forward to it. Happy yeah, New Year. Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth. Coming right back. .fm. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs> We're back with you in the Element Wealth studio. We appreciate Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth, for coming in and giving us his thoughts on the outlook for 2024 from an economic tax market, all the above, a perspective. I I don't know that I can say it enough that the expiration of the Trump tax cuts the individual provisions, which takes effect at the end of 2025, is going to be an epic battle, political battle, in the United States Congress in 2025. They don't want to touch it now during an election year. Of course, remember, all members of the House up for re-election or running for election and then you got, what, I think 31 Senate races being contested, last I checked. I think that's right. That's a lot. It's a it's a outsized number, this cycle, than it has been. But you don't see much discussion, even in the debates. Are you looking that up? Am I close on that figure? Number being contested in uh, 2024? In the US 34 seat. of the 100 seats. 34, okay. So I was actually low by three. 33 are regular elections and one is a special election. Okay. Well, that's a lot. That's more than half. So that's a lot. Now, most it's 100, of, so yeah. it's a third. Oh, okay, yeah, pardon me. Um, uh, so I'm thinking that most of those are probably safe. That's where I got the half from. I think half are considered safe of the of the thirty three. Yeah, mine got a little ahead of me there. Um, but then the rest of them are considered toss up or certainly in play. I guess is the way the political pundits would describe that. So there could be a turnover there. Um, both parties will tell you they're confident. You know that they'll they're going to stay in place with respect to control of the chambers. The Republicans are saying, yeah, we're going to flip it. The Senate retained the House, and the Democrats are saying we're going to flip the House and retain the Senate. Of course they're going to say that. But this is, um, it's going to be an interesting year, and particularly with respect to this uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act set to expire at the end of 25. I mean, debating tax policy always contentious it and it's become more so 
the last, I guess, couple of decades because it, it seems to always, you know, pit one segment of society against another in the so-called class warfare. And I think that's what we're going to see here. And so when you when you talk about just solving the problem of the $2 trillion deficits, and I think many Americans of of all political persuasions would would express that as a concern, voice that as a concern. The challenge is there's just no consensus on how to address it. Folks on the right will say we just got to cut spending, and folks on the left say we can't cut any spending. We got to increase taxes, and that's the fundamental problem. We can't seem to coalesce around any ideas. Uh, because it, that's kind of the starting point. I'm trying to figure out the math here because I'm fairly certain it would be 35 if there are 33 normal elections. And I don't think this is including the most recent special election that will be necessary due to the passing of Senator Feinstein. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Because you already have one special election in Nebraska, so there would be another special election for California. Yeah. That would be 35. Okay. Well, that's a lot. I saw where former major leaguer Steve Garvey played for the Dodgers. He threw his hat in the ring running for the U.S. Senate in the state of California as a Republican, I believe. He was also... uh, affectionately referred to as Popeye because he had those uh, big old uh, big old arms, big old girly muscles, as they call them, the biceps. Played first base for the Dodgers. Played out when I was working out there. Used to go watch the games, him on first base. What was his wife's name? Cindy, I believe. She? Yep. She was a beautiful lady who hosted a very popular morning show in the Los Angeles market, Good Morning L.A. or something like that. And uh, I used to tune in when I was working out there. It's a good program. That's a gigantic market, as you know, uh, Los Angeles. But, yeah, I got that right. I'm Steve Garvey running for U.S. Senate. How about that? That'll be interesting. So, hey, um, a, a busy year from a political perspective when you think about that many Senate seats being contested, all House seats, of course, and then the president. You wonder what that means in terms of folks getting out and voting and going to the polls. And really, I think it's fair to say not a whole lot has changed, right, with respect to voting rules and the voting process in most states. I don't think there's been any any major adjustments there, of which I'm aware. Of course, most of that occurred in 2020 with the COVID, and that there have been a couple states that have walked back their their mail-in voting that was expanded due to COVID. They've, okay. they've gone back to pre-COVID rules and regulations. Okay. Do those happen to be? Are you aware of any of the swing states? Where that would really come into play in the presidential so, no. election? Yeah, I, I also saw a report that um, 2024 
is uh, set to be a year in which candidates for president are going to spend more than ever in their bid to win the White House. Going to be very expensive. Uh, let's see. Expected to spend cumulatively more than $10 billion. That's what's being reported. That's across, of course, all platforms, mediums. Uh, Major candidates, however, fundraising has not been an issue. Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, raised more each, each than $24 million during the past quarter. That's a lot. Incredible. So it's hard to fathom, is it not? $10 billion spent by campaigns to win an election. That is just mind-boggling. I don't know that we've ever seen. I know we hadn't. It's expected to be a, uh, a record of spending. And that's just, wow. $10 I'm still struggling with that, getting past that. I just want to make sure, I believe that's just for presidential candidates. Is that right? That's what I'm seeing. I believe that's just for presidential candidates. That is a bunch. That's hard to believe. Well, I mean, if it's just for presidential candidates, does that mean you'll have a squirrelier Senate election season because the parties are not spending as much on those races. Yeah, I don't know. And I and I misstated. It's it's total. That makes more sense because you, you'd be talking about more than a billion dollars. I mean, of course, Donald Trump, I did think, spent a billion dollars in 2016, mostly of his own money. Uh, okay, it is. It's just president. Just president. $10.2 billion. Unbelievable. Expected. Expected. That's right. That's an increase of 13% over the $9 billion spent in 2020. But the report goes on to point out you had two self-funding Democratic billionaires who, of course, did not get elected that spent a whole bunch of their own money running for office. Of course, uh, not according to Brian Williams at NBC. <laughs> Breaking news. Oh, my gosh. It's a whole bunch of money. Dan in Hattiesburg, we were talking about irregular immigration. That's what now Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is referring to, the situation at the border. Does that mean we have an irregular president? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Man, oh, man. It's a, it's a bunch. Does that mean salespeople are going to have to beat the streets again? <laughs> Paula Meridian says, let's let it expire and increase the burden on Americans that actually work. <laughs> Talking about the expiration of the Trump tax cuts. Well, that's certainly what would happen. I found a report of 72 things that higher ed declared racist in 2023. Because, of course, they did. We'll get to that on the other side of the break. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. 
We are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are in the Element Wealth Studio. So, yep, there is a report identifying 72 things that higher education declared as racist in 2023. We don't have time to go through all 70, 72, but a couple of these, uh, several of them, actually, I remember us discussing on the program when they evolved. You remember this? Clean pantries. Remember talking about that one? <laughs> the clean pantries. They're racist and sexist, according to a Loyola marketing scholar. Clean pantries and tidy houses have racist, sexist, and classist roots. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now, this professor, Jenna Drenton, <laughs> criticized social media users because they posted videos showing different ways to organize your spaces. <laughs> oh, my gosh. These video creators are predominantly white women, <laughs> and they've created a new status symbol to replace the old one of nice houses, nice yards, and nice neighborhoods. <laughs> oh, gosh. Some of the professors scholar to being inclusive. <laughs> exactly. Aren't these women just expressing their inner autism? <laughs> That's true. Uh, some of the papers Professor Drenton has authored include <laughs> video gaming as a gendered pursuit. <laughs> More gamer, less girl. Gendered boundaries, tokenism, and the cultural persistence of masculine dominance. What the hell is that all about? Oh, gosh. Uh, She said cleanliness has historically been used as a cultural gatekeeping mechanism to reinforce status distinctions based on a vague understanding of niceness. You got to be bored to come up with this stuff. You got way too much time on your hand. Permanently twisted panties. Unbelievable. So, another author <laughs> at the University of Pennsylvania. We should not be surprised given the performance of their august president <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. They hosted a talk this past year held by a scholar who argues that the fast food industry is racist. Even the bread was white. 
<laughs> oh, gosh, this, this lecture was given by Rutgers University professor, I don't know if I can pronounce it, Nai Oyo Kwate, whose faculty bio states she specializes in social determinants of African-American health. So she says that fast food, considered America's, quote, national meal, has shifted from its position of jealousy-guarded whiteness and wholesome leisure to gauche homogenized, anachronistic, and black. What? <laughs> Golly. Oh, gosh. I, I don't even know what to say to this. This is what you get stuff. when academia pumps out more master's degrees and PhDs than there are places to put them. <laughs> that is true. You wind up with a whole bunch of bored, overeducated <laughs> idiots. <laughs> So there was another – this is in Florida. You wouldn't think you'd see this. But, you know, we have reported that there is an abundance of wokeness at Florida, Florida State, Texas A&M, places you wouldn't think you'd find a lot of that. Of course, they have the obligatory African-American studies course. And they have interpreted the genre – they're calling it a genre – of horror. This <laughs> as um, acclaiming racial identity and oppression (laughs) while using materials on whiteness, black feminism, and queering personhood. This is being taught in the class. And there's, of course, black horror, white horror, (laughs) explores the relationship between horror and black literary modes and tradition. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. What? Uh, I believe they've also proclaimed that Frankenstein is racist. (laughs) We're coming right back in the Element Well studio after Fox News and Super Talk News. Another hour left. And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is now live with you on this Friday Eve. We are in the Element Wealth Studio. We're going to be with you again tomorrow, today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear an interview with former NFL star Corey Miller. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to SuperiorCatfish.com for more info. 
The C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. We are, best I know, in the studio this week, uh, the remaining single day. And then we're back with you live Tuesday through Friday. We got the best of on Monday, New Year's Day. And, man, it's going to be hopping come next week. So talking about... 72 things that higher ed has found racist. Wouldn't it just be easy to list all the things that aren't? Because that's a pretty short list nowadays. I have expressed concerns about this whole DEI movement that we have, of course, re-termed, renamed those letters on middays, signified discrimination, exclusion, and inequity. Well, yet another case, another example surfaces where the march to mediocrity, which is what DEI achieves, just look no further than the president of Harvard. Nobody else could survive what she has and remain as the president of what was certainly once thought to be the most prestigious institution in the land. It deserves a president who doesn't cheat on their coursework, at a minimum, and who can recognize that calling for the eradication of an entire people is evil. There's no contextualization of that. But now there are surgeons who are speaking up about what they describe as toxic DEI in medicine. And we've shared some examples of that going on in the country, especially in America's uh, medical colleges. The, the, uh, even here, we've, we've heard about examples of that with the College of Medicine. So you've got now surgeons who are really taking to task what is it the American College of Surgeons I believe is that group Dr. Richard Bosart penned a column in National Review that's where I found it and he says that this placement of DEI above merit performance capability is sacrificing quality medical training and patient care because they're focusing, this is what he said in his letter, they're focusing on concepts like microaggressions. What the hell has that got to do with surgery? Implicit bias. White privilege. Says that has no place in medicine. I agree. Touche. I don't think it has any place in anything. And says these programs are insidious, this DEI training, this is nonsense. And that it's becoming almost exhausting. He blasted... Oh, there's no almost to it. I agree. He really took the American College of Surgeons, the ACS, to task for providing a blueprint for implementing equitable practices in medicine. Do you want equitable practices? 
the way they define equitable practices, which means I don't care if they fail the test, you know, based on their race, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, what have you, just give them an A. Aren't we seeing that at these prominent universities? Like 80% of the grades are A's or something insane at Harvard and Yale. They're not all A's. You know that. We're seeing it in our own state. We're seeing grade inflation. There's been some work done on that here in the state of Mississippi. I don't know that that's necessarily rooted in this concept of equity. And and if it's got some racial underpinnings to it or not, but it's disturbing. So now, as expected, you're seeing this impact the quality of medical care dispensed. You've probably also seen that in the last few months, there have been an uptick in incidents in the skies. And that includes, of course, on the air uh, at the airport on the ground, uh, air traffic controllers are responsible for regulating the traffic on the ground as well as in the air. It all works together. And you have to wonder, is that because the president made it clear he wanted more minorities to be certified as air traffic controllers? So are we just adjusting all standards downward to achieve these goals? Sure seems like it. Sure as hell did it at Harvard. Nobody else could get hired or certainly survive and stay in place with the record she has of fabricating or failure to cite is more, I think, appropriate description. That's plagiarism. It's what it is. Duplicative language is what they're describing it as. No, well, it's if not. they rationalize the theft of goods and services, of course they're going to rationalize the theft of thought. That's true. That is, that is very, uh, very well articulated. That's absolutely true, because that's what it is, theft of thought, somebody else's work. We seem to be okay with that. You know, I, I may go out on a limb here, but could you not, to some degree, equate that to slavery? Some people would say you're crazy, Gerard, but you're, you're taking somebody else's work product. Not compensating for them Well, the for people that. that would say you're crazy are the same people that tie everything else to slavery. Well, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, that's I think that's a form of it where you're taking somebody else's work product. You're not compensating them for it. And that could come in the form of just citing them, referencing them as the original drafter of that, the author, at a minimum. Well, that's perfectly acceptable when you're preparing academic works. But I guess Harvard looks the other way, even looks the other way when it comes to applying their own standards, their standards of conduct. Makes it very clear. We expect what you turn in to be what you produced yourself. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of a master's and a doctorate is you are progressing the field of study with new thoughts and ideas. That's true. Good point. 
That's exactly Instead right. Instead of regurgitation of others' thoughts and ideas. Yeah. I mean, especially in your thesis, in your dissertation, that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to stimulate thought and thinking and um, elevate issues to be civilly debated. And it's things that come out of your own head. That's the idea. Not somebody else's. You're just rehashing what's already been done. You're not in that case, as you say. You're not advancing. You're staying the same. But again, now we, we see it in medicine. We see doctors speaking up about it. We're seeing it in air traffic control. We know it's been prevalent in the academic community. I mean, that's like the epicenter for this DEI stuff. It, it, it concerns me because, to your point, we're not advancing society. We're, we're not improving the quality of life by... You know, they may say, well, yeah, we are for for those who have been historically oppressed or who, who, are, who are just wrapped up and, and suppressed by systemic racism and bigotry and so forth. No, you're not. You're just changing the standards. That's not really helping them. I'm all for helping them, but I'm not for changing the standards. I think any reasonable person feels that way but i guess that's not the case when you're as you say you got more degrees and you got space to hang them oh you're smarter than the rest of us <laughs> silly we're coming right back with more in the element well studio stay with us Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. back, everyone. It's Middays, live in the Element Well studio. Also next week, a busy week, the legislature convenes. And uh, we got MEC Capital Day on Thursday. Uh, the Gallo Show will be on hand for that at the Mississippi Trade Mart. That should be always uh, fun and informative. Also, we need to pass on, you've probably already seen it, but the Michigan Supreme Court rejected the insurrectionist ban case, and thus Donald Trump will be on the 2024 primary ballot in the state of Michigan. That, of course, comes after the state of Colorado's Supreme Court has uh, barred the former president from appearing on the primary ballot. And that comes up in March, in as we determined previously in Colorado. So not a whole lot of time for the Supreme Court of the United States to rule on that issue. But good news for President Trump in that respect. You've probably also seen that 
his case will not be taken up as originally planned. The, uh, what's his name, the prosecutor that's going after him there is not happy about that, that Jack Smith, I believe, and he's not happy. And uh, because it's being delayed, I, I think their objective was to tie him up in court right in the throes of the election cycle. But they're not going to take it up. Supreme Court's not. And and so that's also a win for the former president. And then he won't be messing with that, at least uh, at that point, during the critical uh, weeks and months of the election cycle. Something else that was a bit of a surprise from a just a ruling perspective is that in the state of Idaho, you may have seen that, uh, the, the court there ruled that the state's gender-affirming care ban cannot be enforced. Thus, the state of Idaho will be required to allow gender affirmation surgery, essentially sex change surgery and mutilation of the bodies of minors to uh, be done in the state of Idaho. It was a bit of a surprise, honestly, that that came out that way. But a federal judge has blocked the ban. And it does make you wonder, does it not, might that happen in the state of Mississippi? The judge, the district court judge, Lynn Windmill, ruled just yesterday that the law's restrictions violate the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment. The law, by the way, was staged to go into effect January 1st. So, I don't know about the 14th Amendment's application here. But the way the legislation was crafted, any medical professional who provided such care could be convicted of a felony. I'm not even going to call it care. I would just say who administered the various procedures, which could include castration as well as radical surgery to uh, really completely change um, a, a young person's body, the tops and the bottoms, as they call it, reconfigure them. So we'll see what happens because numerous other states, such as Arkansas and Mississippi, have passed similar legislation banning such procedures and treatments. Will that receive a challenge? Might that land in court? Will this judge's decision serve as a, a a case study, as a precedent for future decisions? Remains to be seen. I've heard nothing about such in the state of Mississippi, but it does make you wonder. This is hot off the press. This literally happened yesterday. It's just mind-boggling to me that we're even having this discussion that it's necessary, and, and even members of our legislature I found to be rather subdued about and and just kind of disappointed, dejected that we even have to take such matters up 
and pass laws to prevent this sort of nonsense. I, I agree with them. It's sad that that's where we've gotten in this country. I still believe that a great deal of that is not really rooted in in fact and necessary so-called care, but more about attention and just trendy, I think, as you've said before. I think that's a, a great way to, uh, to kind of frame the the movement, if you want to call it that, in the country that's just mind-boggling. I don't know what else to say about it. It's crazy. Totally crazy. That judge probably went to Harvard, says Mike, in Gulfport. Could be. Tim and McGee said these people are stone cop crazy. And uh, with respect to all the 72 things that we just, uh, we didn't go through all 72, but 72, according to a report I read, things that are considered racist deemed so in the year 2023 in higher ed, Tim says, do these people study to get this stupid? (laughs) It is insane that, is it not, that so much energy, so many resources, so much money is dedicated to this? With so little benefit, I'm just not seeing the benefit. Society doesn't benefit when we abandon standards, academic standards, as an example. Um, Corporate standards, and I don't mean corporate policy as much as I do the primary function of a business which is to serve society and deliver goods and services to society in exchange for their money. That's not really moving the needle. Forced diversity and inclusion doesn't really achieve anything. You're forcing. When it happens naturally, when it's done consistent with performance and merit, yeah, that's great. I'm all for it. And I see it over and over again where that's the case. But when you start forcing, like, we just got to have more minorities um, as air traffic controllers. Doesn't matter if they're qualified or not. We just, we got to produce a chart, right, a report, an analysis with all the statistics that shows, hey, look at us. We're virtuous. We're better. We're superior to you because we forced, we eliminated these disparities, not because We came up with some innovations and techniques and methodologies to truly qualify minority populations for these jobs, and they're doing great at it. No, we're just going to look the other way when it comes to their ability to prove they're worthy and qualified to do these jobs. It's not helping anybody. In fact, it's hurting. That's the whole point. And that's what this surgeon is uh, is pointing out, which I applaud for. So the the good news is I do need to, to pass on. You've seen some of this, Rhino, I'm sure, is that because I think you've talked about it. There are a lot of companies that are starting to to tear down some of these sprawling DEI departments, and they're not funding them like they were. They're not hiring people into these groups like they were, they're they're changing, they're tuned, which I think is positive. And you know what? It's because they've seen a negative return on their investment. That's exactly right. It's the shareholders. You know, the people who give them their money expecting to grow it, to put it to work, and they're not concerned about that, which means they'd be doing everything in their power 
to boost their bottom lines. And what the left doesn't understand is, you know, those two can coexist. You can be socially responsible, if you will, and boost your bottom line. And in fact, being socially responsible, and that doesn't mean forcing certain people based on their physical profile into jobs and giving them preferential treatment. That's not being socially responsible. You can do that and still produce a profit. In fact, I'd argue that those who are are probably more profitable. They're rewarded for it. Maybe it means you support worthy charitable organizations, for example. I mean, there's, um, gosh, we used to participate in Habitat for Humanity Days and so forth in my company. You know, we used to help and always recognize law enforcement whenever you had law enforcement week or whatever it was. Just as an example, you can do that. I consider that being socially responsible, but, you know, that didn't impede or impair our bottom line, our pursuit of profit. They can coexist. The left doesn't believe that. Little CCR bumping us out of this segment here on Middays. We are in the Element Well studio, half an hour left. Please stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, the Dow is moving up uh, across the 100 points up line just a moment ago. We're back with you in the Element Wealth Studio. So we were talking about how companies are cutting back on their DEI programs. Even Google and Meta, who invested handsomely in such programs, in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. But they're on a bit of a retreat now. They set up all these programs that were designed to support black employees and, and quote, according to Sundar uh, Pakai, the CEO of Google, quote, to build sustainable equity for Google's Black Plus community and externally to make our products and programs helpful in the moments that matter most to black users. That was then. Well, now they're cutting back on the number of DEI-related job postings, down 44% from the prior year. So that's a significant reduction. And they're, so they're, they're changing. They're pivoting a bit. Same with Meta. They've also cut lots of staffers in the DEI department. And, you know, they're paying attention to their bottom line and their budget. And as you've said, uh, Rhino, they're not seeing any measurable return on this. They did have a goal. Google, for example, they had a goal of, Improving is what they call it, representation of underrepresented groups in leadership by 30%. More than doubling 
the number of black workers at non-senior levels, all by 2025, and addressing representation issues in hiring, retention, and promotions, and establishing better support for the mental and physical health for black employees. Now, I, I happen to think all those are noble goals and objectives, but when you sacrifice performance, qualifications, merit, quality to achieve those goals, they're misguided. Totally. And especially if you consider that if you, let's say, hire or promote or compensate someone solely on that basis because you're trying to achieve some statistical objectives, and in doing so, you are rejecting for hire, promotion, or compensation adjustments, a person who's frankly more worthy of it, well, then that's discrimination. Let's call it what it is. If it were reversed, of course you'd scream discrimination. It's the same thing we're seeing with Claudine Gay at Harvard. And this sort of stuff, I mean, the reason it's worth talking about this is it's permeating all corners of society. But the good news, and that's the report for today, is that these companies are starting to scale back. And that's good. Another one was American Airlines that, man, they were all in on this stuff in 2020. Starbucks, J.P. Morgan, and they're all scaling back. BlackRock. Uh, Yum Brands, they operate, of course, Pizza Hut and others. So they're Lowe's. All had these sorts of policies in place. And they're, they're pivoting. They're transitioning away from this sort of stuff. There's possible legal risks that have come to light where shareholders and they have a fiduciary responsibility to them and they're coming forward and saying you're more focused on that than you are producing the return that i expected when i sent you my money essentially when i bought your stock so they need to be a little bit more concerned about things other than diversity targets if they want to continue to see the money flowing in in the form of investment in their their equity, in their stocks. So Yum! Brands recently removed references to specific racial groups, and American Airlines has recently dropped numerical diversity targets. I, I, uh, I see this as all good news, honestly. I, I, I hope that continues. I'm not going to hold my breath, but it does feel like the, the pendulum is finally swinging back towards sanity. Yeah, and you know, just talking about this like I am, I'm sure there are people who would consider my analysis of this to be racist. You're just a racist. Oh, yeah. Those people are idiots, but they exist. Right. You, you've you just got to, again, their idea of uh, achieving diversity and inclusion and equity is to force it. Those people lack the cognitive ability for critical thinking. Ah, is that what the... I've That's been, why they only regurgitate ideas. 
instead of having their own. You mean like Claudine Gay? Yeah. The president of Harvard. I get you. And, of course, all these companies like to run around uh, patting themselves on the back, do they not? I mean, it's a badge of honor. It's a trophy. Look at me. I got 8,000 people in my DEI department. Look at my statistics here on the number I've hired and, and, and promoted and so forth. Look at the ranks of my management team. Now, I'm losing money, <laughs> which is the more meaningful measurement. Unbelievable. Now, would you please share with the folks the story about something you shared with me yesterday after the show? A, a bit of an altercation with a Delta Airlines ticket agent. Oh, yeah. There's a, a dude that thinks he's a girl that is apparently an actor or something, thinks he's a big shot. And he tried to pull the trans card at a Delta Airlines terminal at the desk there with an employee. And the video starts halfway through the conversation. Obviously, something happened before this to elevate the intensity of the discussion. But they go on to say, well, you've misgendered me. You've misgendered me twice. And the guy behind the counter goes, okay. If you want to take it personal, that's fine. And just very matter-of-fact told the person, if you really want to be condescending, I have the authority to have your butt drug out of here. Do you want to do that? And this happened a couple days before Christmas. Do you want to do that three days before Christmas? Yep. Keep it up. Yep. Uh, you showed me the video. It's now gone viral, oh, yeah. as you know. It's all over the place. Somebody was back there filming it, of course, hoping to get a gotcha moment. That's what yeah, they it was wanted. The, the trans person was hoping to get some sympathy by posting it online. Like, look what happened <sighs> to me at Delta. How could Delta do this to me? That's exactly what it was. And it's. I want to preface this, what I'm about to tell you, is irrelevant. But to the left, it is relevant. It's a black person. The agent... Not the, not the misgendered person, the activist that was just looking to pick a fight, get some attention, potentially find something they could hang their hat on to file a lawsuit against Big Delta. And, this, and, and the best part is he was calm. He was direct. He was matter of fact. He looked at that person in the eyes. He wasn't squirming. And the best part is when he said, Hey, I can have you escorted out of here. Truth. That's the way it ought to be. Because people can be idiots, like this person was. And it was all about words. We are so twisted up over words. It's crazy. It's insane. But I I support. And look, Delta, I've told you guys before, Ed Bastian... Go look it up, CEO of Delta. He perhaps is one of the most woke CEOs in the country. And and Delta, all in on all this stuff. And remember, they were the ones, even though I think it actually hurt them financially, they were all about moving the Major League Baseball, this All-Star game, from their home in Atlanta. Bastion himself. Uh, I I may have shared before that Harvard Business Review does a great job of, of recording one-on-one interviews with prominent corporate CEOs. And about three, four years ago, I guess, this was before 2020, Ed Bastian um, had, did one with uh, the interviewer there from the Harvard B-School. And, 
they were a big customer of ours. And I said, you know, this ought to be interesting. I'm going to tune in. And I, I fired it up, and there's Ed Bastian. And it wasn't 10 minutes into it. Bastian says, you know, I'm, I'm privileged. I'm, I'm only in this role as the CEO of this major airline because I'm a white male. And after that, I said, okay, I'm turning it off. You're irrelevant to me. Don't need to listen anymore. He's welcome to resign if he feels that way. Yeah, exactly. Totally agree. We got the final segment of Middays on the other side of the break. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Yeah, I was always a crazy one. Broke into the stadium and I wrote your number on the 50-yard line. You were always a perfect we're back in the Element Well studio on the ceasefire tax line. Sort of bittersweet to hear the corporations are scaling back their DEI programs. I, for one, was looking forward to seeing pygmy people in the NBA, says Steve. <laughs> that would be true, DEI. Right? True. Um, let's see here. Uh, something else. Y'all are going to keep bumping things like CCR and Head East. You'll have to become a rock station. (laughs) Yeah, man, we appreciate that. Uh, So Donald Trump on Christmas had kind of an interesting message. I'm not sure if you guys saw that. Christmas Day message on his social media. Merry Christmas to all, including crooked Joe Biden's only hope deranged Jack Smith included also are world leaders, both good and bad, but none of which are as evil and sick as the thugs we have inside our country who, with their open borders, inflation, Afghanistan, surrender, green new scam, <laughs> high taxes, no energy independence, woke military, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Iran, all electric car lunacy, and so much more. We're looking to destroy our people are looking to destroy our once again USA. Our once great, pardon me, USA. May they rot in hell again. Merry Christmas. What a what a joyful Christmas message that is. May they rot in hell. You just gotta accept it. I mean you're not gonna change it. That's who he is and the way he is. Debbie Dingle She's a representative in uh, Michigan. Trump of her, the former president, said, Debbie Dingell of Michigan is a loser who is helping crooked Joe Biden and his merry band of thugs to destroy our country with an insane open borders policy, inflation, high-cost energy, green new scam, horrible world diplomacy. (laughs) Oh, gosh, going after her. Incredible. 
Daniel said the former president is contributing to the divisiveness in the nation and brought up Trump's attacks against her in years past. That's the way he is. He's going to attack everybody that uh, he feels like is in his way, is a potential foe. Oh, that's what we're going to be watching all next year, I would say. Ought to be fun. No doubt about it. Also, did you see that Representative Lauren Boebert? Yeah, running in a different district. Doesn't feel like she can win in her home district there in Colorado. She's seeking office in the U.S. House of Representatives in a in a different district that she says is more GOP-friendly. That's kind of weird. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. So she represents Colorado's third district, and instead she's running for office in the fourth district. Quote, I'm going to do everything in my power to represent the third district well for the remainder of this term as I work to earn the trust of grassroots conservative voters in the fourth district to represent them in 2025. That was in a Facebook post where she announced her decision to run for a totally different district. It's the right move for me personally, and it's the right decision for those who support our conservative movement. How about that? So, but here's the thing. I, I guess I haven't looked at that. If I'm assuming the 4th District is currently held by a Republican, since she describes it as GOP-friendly. So, in putting her hat in the ring in the 4th District, and not the 3rd, the one she currently represents, that you would have to believe that in her view is... Yeah, it's Ken Buck who is not seeking his sixth term. Okay, so according to my calculations, if she exits the third and sort of opens the door for a Democrat victory and simply replaces an existing Republican in the other district, in the fourth, we're losing a seat. Republicans would be losing a seat there. Instead of having two Republicans, you have one Republican, one Democrat, as her seat would transition to Democrat representation. How about that? Hmm. Of course, that's the same stuff we heard about George Santos. You know, when they expelled him, there was concerns that a Republican could not prevail in uh, replacing him. We will see. I think uh, I think that a Republican will. In fact, I've seen a couple of the candidates there and. Heard from a couple of members of the House who feel pretty positive and confident about that. But we are out of time here today on the program. We're back in the Element Well studio again with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Talk Mississippi Media Production.